everybody, welcome to another episode of History Unloaded. Today with Danny and Nick. Uh, Ashley, uh, unfortunately, is not able to join us today, but we have on for a new edition of People Smarter Than Us, uh, Nick Jensen-Jones, who is the uh, Director of Armament Research Services and an all-around extremely knowledgeable guy. Uh, so welcome to the podcast, Nick. Thanks, Danny. Good to be here. Um, so today's topic for our listeners uh, is going to be about 3D printing. We've touched on this in a few other episodes, but I think uh, this is a subject that Nick is very well versed in and something that's uh, fascinating to talk about. I think will be, in some ways it already is history, um, but it definitely will be a historical marker, road marker, um, when people from the future are looking back on this era of firearms development. So. How about Nick? Uh, do you want to give me like a quick rundown and for our listeners of what is 3D printing? Yeah, sure. So really, we're, yeah, we're talking about additive rather than traditional subtractive manufacturing. So rather than starting with a block of something solid and taking stuff away uh, or forcing it into a shape by stamping or pressing, we're, we're building up an object layer by layer. Uh, using additive processes and they can the way in which that works can be anything from uh, essentially melting and fusing uh, polymer filament or uh, sintering together powders using a high power laser uh, in in some sort of different um, atmosphere sometimes there's all sorts of different manners in which you can you can uh, achieve this additive manufacturing but the principle is that you're uh, building something from nothing um, <laughs> you know using a, a layered approach rather than rather than a subtractive approach and right now, most 3D printing is in some polymer or reinforced polymer. Right. At, at, is what people think of, but there are other fancier ways to do it. Right. At, at the user level, the consumer level right now, uh, you know, your desktop 3D printers, which can be really quite cheap, uh, good ones for a couple hundred dollars now. Uh, those are still printing in polymers. And you've got a range of different polymers and different types of plastics. Uh, but as, as uh, the more complex methods of, of 3D printing, um, you know, inevitably develop and miniaturize, they become cheaper as well. So there is 3D printing in metals uh, that's still cost prohibitive, uh, but that may not always be the case. So how do you, in your work, like how do you see this applying to sort of, because where we're going with this is obviously sort of the craft or home manufacture of firearms. So how do you see this? How does that change that idea of what, did, what does it enable the, the consumer level to do that they couldn't before. Yeah, I, I, so yeah, exactly right. You're talking about craft production or home production, DIY kind of manufacturing of firearms, whether that's legal, like it is in the United States, for example, or whether that's illegal, like it may be in other countries, say Japan. Um, the, the key kind of revolutionary uh, factor here is, is the lowering of the bar to entry. So you can produce a firearm or indeed produce all sorts of different complex uh, assemblies without having the level of technical knowledge and the level of understanding of you know, traditional machining that you might've had to have had 10, 20, 50 years ago. So, whereas to produce a firearm at home that was capable with say a rifle barrel and, and with a you know, reasonable degree of accuracy and reliability required quite a lot of machining talent. It requires relatively or comparatively uh, little um, technical expertise when you're using some of these emergent technologies. And it's not just 3D printing. There are also uh, you know, other emergent craft production technologies that support that. Things like uh, desktop CNC machining, miniaturized CNC, uh, ECM, electrochemical machining, which can be done with a static setup with no moving parts, which is quite cheap to produce. And you can, you can make rifled barrels at home, um, which is a, a real game changer. 
lots of other technologies like that as well. So I, would you go as far to say like that, um, you know, 3D printed plastics are probably the best known, but really the revolution is in some ways programmable consumer level CNC and other machines that you can input a digital file that is of a firearm receiver, let's say. Yeah. Or is that to go to, is that going too far? Yeah, it's sort of yes and no. So you, you've touched on the, the crux of the matter, which is the, the real advance in terms of lowering that barrier to entry and, and enabling more people to easily produce firearms or anything else is the interface between the person and the machine, making that as simple as possible. Uh, especially if you don't have to have those design skills and, and the plans or the designs are freely available online uh, or even uh, commercially available, you still have uh, that reduced barrier to entry. So the closer we can get to uh, click print fire, which has always been the, the kind of catchy phrase that people have used. Um, and, you know, when, when the Liberator single shot um, extract fired cartridge case with a stick handgun was was released in 2013 the the, the modern version of the the liberator named after of course the world war ii um, stamped metal design when that was released in 2013 rightfully so people were saying this is pretty useless it doesn't have a rifle barrel in fact it doesn't have much of a barrel at all to be honest uh, you know it's incredibly slow to reload it's liable to explode in your hand if it's produced from the wrong kind of plastic which was you know a common issue at the time when people were sort of finding their feet in 3d printing that point of view is really six or seven years out of date now. Uh, and we're at a time now where the, that barrier to entry is much lower. There's much less hand finishing involved. Um, we're, we're certainly not, I should stress, we're not at a, a click print fire point in history yet, but we're a lot closer. Uh, and we're now at a point where somebody who has just a, a sort of a general a technical inclination is pretty good with computers, for example, uh, is able to 3D print fire. Yeah. And so I want to, I want to ask you more about sort of where it started with firearms mm. and where it, where it's gotten to now. But so for me as a museum person that deals with historical firearms and guns that I think might be historical one day, for me, it, it really fits into that, like that long history of craft production, whether it be a, a gunsmith in the Khyber Pass or somebody in the 19th century in a shop in the Adirondacks in New York, who's just working and building 10 rifles a year. Um, you know, there's, a, there's all sorts of variations you can find of this throughout history. But I think you're right. It's, it's changed. It's changed how people build, you know, if you're, if you're that 19th century gunsmith, you probably have to have some, you know, metalworking capabilities. There's some shortcuts. You can order a barrel from a right. larger manufacturer. You can probably order a lock plate from a larger manufacturer but there's still a lot of hand fitting and um, all sorts of things that only gets in some ways it gets more complicated. The further along you go, if you want to build a modern firearm, that's far more complicated than the steps you need to build a percussion muzzle loader. Um, and there were some people that were forging their own barrels, forging their own locks. That's entirely possible. But again, that's a whole nother step up in knowledge. And so we're at a point now where those steps are all sort of, coming down rather than going up, yeah. uh, so to speak. Exactly. So you mentioned the Liberator. So that's how, I guess that was just me, you know, getting on my soapbox of history here to say, <laughs> there's a long tradition yeah, sort of craft production. So you mentioned the Liberator. Do you want to explain sort of what, the Liberator is probably the most famous, but there's a few, aren't there, of like those early generation, entirely 3D printed firearms. Yeah. And, and so 2013 is that sort of watershed year in terms of the public awareness 
how 3D printing and firearm uh, intersected. Have in, I believe it was May, Fence Distributed released the, the Liberated design, which was the one that got obviously all the, me the media attention and um, you know, it was then tested by police forces over the world to show that it could take your hand off. So, <laughs> there's a lot of kind of concern around it. That was the one that got all the media attention, but at the same time, there were um, you know, AR lowers were being printed. Uh, there was a design called the Grizzly, which is a 22 long rifle, um, kind of takedown mini rifle uh, that was 3D printed. And then also in that year, you had Solid Concepts, who I think are, I think they're also in Texas, in Austin. I have to, I have to check that. But Solid Concepts is, was, they've since been bought out, was a um, kind of commercial 3D printing concern. And they produced a, uh, a metal 3D printed 1911 um, using direct metal laser sintering, DMLS, which is, like I say, a much more expensive, you know, orders of magnitude more expensive machinery. Uh, but just to show as a proof of concept that it could be done, and they sold a small number of them as well. I think they sold them for $11,900 each or something. So maybe maybe that's not, it might not be that much. It might've been $9,100 or some sort of 1911 combination. But in any case, it was much more than you would pay for a 1911. Um, right. It was just to show, you know, it can be done. 3D printing is viable entirely in metal, even even though they were sort of, you know, probably decades ahead of, of making that cost viable. And then going on through sort of 2014, 2015, you had uh, revolver designs, either pepper box, so manually indexed, um, multiple multiple uh, barrel designs, or uh, revolver with a with rotating cylinder designs coming out again mostly in low power cartridges so the liberator was mostly in three uh, conversion and, and different versions of it but it was mostly in 380 uh, 380 acp or 22 lr and most of those later designs the zigzag wash bear that kind of thing also in 22 380 so still keeping to those relatively low pressure cartridges and then a few nine millimeter designs started coming out 2015 2016 uh, and then by 2016 uh, going to 2017 you have the shooty Series. So Shooty's uh, MP1 was first, and then the following year, the AP9, so which were 9mm, 9x19 uh, uh, weapons capable of semi automatic fire. So all of those that I've just described, with the exception of the, the, the metal 3D printed sort of oddball, but all of the polymer guns I just described, the rest of them were all um, designs that used unrifled barrel. Now, the first ones were printed barrels, so polymer barrels, obviously a fairly short lifespan. And then as the sort of designs evolved, you started to see people lining the barrels uh, with, with metal tubing. And then eventually for sort of the shooty series and some of the other guns of that era, used pieces of, uh, of metal tube that were smooth bore, but designed to be the right diameter for the projectile uh, or purchased at the right diameter for the projectile. And so that, I guess, at that point, it's probably good to describe briefly that there are the three kind of categories, if you like, of 3D printed firearms. You've got fully 3D printed firearms that are made entirely from 3D printer, like your first generation Liberator, everything's printed, including the barrel. Uh, F3DP is the, is the expression that's sometimes used. You've got hybrid designs that use a combination of 3D printed and non-3D printed parts. So that might be, uh, you know, a 3D printed receiver with a, a piece of steel tubing as the, as the barrel or with some, say some hex bolts or something to hold the design together and provide structural rigidity, maybe a couple of steel side plates. Then you've got what are known as PKC, which is either parts kit completion or parts kit conversion, depending on who you ask. And that is the idea of taking, uh, in, in US legal terms, a parts kit um, that is missing just the registered components, so usually a lower receiver or a frame, and printing just that component. So 
that's when you see something like um, 3D printed uh, block frame and everything else is OEM or aftermarket components designed for block, including a right so that, Yeah. And so that's where I think, at least to my, I would say I'm not an expert in this in this whole discussion, um, but to my mind, that's where the popularity of it really started to expand is because, I mean, polymer frames have been around for a while for handguns. Yeah. They've been around as AR lowers, polymer lowers. I don't know when the first yeah, one was. 50 you know, years, 40 years for different, you know, high, high yeah. kind of frequency use of polymers. Yeah. So those have been around. So people, you know, obviously realized if it's already polymer, why can't we 3D yeah. print this polymer piece? Um, and so that, and then, you know, buying your upper assembly and the lower parts kit for, to put together an AR and you just 3D printed the, just the receiver, uh, the Glock, you know, the, there's the, there's a, I think there's a few different um, files for Glock frames. Yep. And then you, you know, you buy your, your slide, the frames, the controlled part legally in the US, yep. you can buy the, all the parts to finish it out. And so that has really, in my mind, sort of expanded the horizon away from the truly, because obviously they created a huge stir when they came out in 2013 with like a totally 3D printed gun right. that didn't actually need any metal unless there was a legal requirement for a certain correct limit of metal like there, I believe there is in the US. Yeah, so they, they um, released it with a block of, which meant to have a one inch square cube or something of, of steel that sits in there to meet that legal requirement. But of course, you know, it's easily obvious or easily left out. Right. Um, and that one created a big story. And, and actually, I, we, so we've collected as the museum, we've collected a set of 3D printed guns. A, mm. a user in the community offered them to us. We accepted. And it, it actually took, even as a firearms museum, and as part of this larger center institution, it took us quite a bit of arguing and debating, you know, can we actually collect this thing? And mm. yes, we can. And here's why. And yeah. Um, I actually had to call like our contact at the tech branch to like say, yes, you can. Here's why show that to our legal counsel who wasn't so sure. Um, mm -hmm. But that's a whole nother story. Despite that, I don't think we're the first museum because when it came out in, in 2013, I want to say the V&A museum in London, like publicly collected a liberator. Yeah. And, and um, now quite a few collections do have even non firearms like museums without a focus on firearms do have, particularly the Liberator in their collection because of how iconic it became. Um, right. And, yeah. and for museums, just the technology as a whole, you know, we're talking about this technology as it relates to guns, but as a whole, right. the conversation in museums has been like, oh, we can use these for science and learning parts of exhibits. Um, we can use these for exhibit fabrication to test out mounts and that kind of thing. And all the, so the, the technology is probably for many of our listeners is, apl is applied to, Lots and lots of industries. Um, right. It's changing how a lot of things are done, but specifically for firearms, that is that liberator was like the watershed moment, I guess. So, right. we've talked about the three categories and how that's developed. Are there more beyond those sort of nine millimeter, three eighty guns that are fully three D printed? Yeah. So at this point, the there are kind of two um, paths that are experiencing the most development and. That's determined largely by the legal regime. You sort of touched on this. In the US, uh, A, it's easy to get parts kits, completely legal to purchase, you know, via mail order, uh, rifled barrels, 
upper receivers or slides, that sort of thing. So in the United States, the kind of path of um, most that's receiving the most attention or the most kind of uh, growth in user base tends to be those PKC uh, builds because people are able to build all, all sorts of interesting farms out of them. So in recent months and over the last sort of 18 months especially, we've seen a lot of um, development of different designs. So now you can, you can get uh, a 3D printed file for a 3D printed uh, Browning high power um, frame, for example. So more obscure weapons that, you know, perhaps aren't focused on getting you the cheapest, most efficient firearm, although you can also uh, get a high point uh, frame file, which makes for a very cheap, I was told the story that uh, some users purchased, I'm going to get the figure wrong, but I believe it was something like 12 or $15 for the parts kit uh, from a from a police auction. And then we're able to print the frame for a couple of bucks. And so you get a $15, wow. $18 handgun, um, which is wow. which is quite a changer, a game changer. So, you know, there's that side of things in the US and then particularly in Europe uh, where there's a, a smaller but fairly sort of hardcore community uh, focuses more towards those hybrid designs. So using a combination of technologies and a combination of 3D printed polymer and uh, aftermarket metal parts to build hybrid designs. And sort of chief amongst those and best known and, and for good reason at the moment is what's known as the FGC9. It stands for an expletive gun control number nine or nine millimeter. Um, and they've, they've had, they've built frankly a very successful design. It's a semi-automatic, essentially what in the U S you might call a PCC, a pistol caliber carbine, carbine, um, you know, using unregulated AR parts in Europe where possible using electrochemical machining uh, to rifle a barrel at home, uh, electrochemical machining for, for listeners who aren't uh, au fait with that technology is, basically the opposite of electroplating. So instead of depositing a material, you're, you're removing material. And so you can use a 3D printed, funnily enough, the jig for it is 3D printed. And they include all the instructions for this in the FGC9 uh, documentation that the developers released. It's a 3D printed jig that you place inside the right, uh, right uh, size of uh, high pressure tubing, steel tubing, and it, it strips away the correct rifling profile. So, Using a combination of those technologies and, and being able to build it at home, they've essentially been able to come up with a viable um, you know, home defense weapon or, or, or short range kind of firearm like that. And it's a, it, the capability of that firearm is a lot closer to a commercial firearm than most people expect. It's, it's very, very close. Yeah. And so, you know, of course, we're talking about, you know, the things themselves. Obviously, there's a, a lot of different motivations. Um, you know, in some countries, probably the motivation is there's no way to get these things legally. I'm going to work around the laws just completely at odds illegally yeah. in the U S there's some motivation. This allows me to build a receiver. That's hard to make otherwise for an unusual parts kit um, to get a very cheap firearm. Like you mentioned, yeah. um, there's always the, because I can factor versus. That, and that's most know. of it, honestly, like, you know, having interacted with a lot of people in that community now, most of the people in the U S community, at least are motivated by interest and, and, you know, the kind of traditional makers, if you like, people who like to, to build stuff with their hands or to build stuff uh, which requires some some kind of mental gymnastics. So, yeah, that's certainly the case. But as you say, in, in somewhere like Europe, in most of Western Europe, for example, um, any production of any unregulated production, unlicensed production of firearms is, is illegal. So that leads, I guess, where I'm going with this whole point is, obviously, it's absolutely fascinating field. And I, you know, personally, I feel a lot of sympathy for like the tinkerers want to figure out like you know as someone 
who is very interested in firearms, but has very little mechanical skill. Right. Like the idea that I could do this on my own is super appealing. Like I get that. Yeah. But there's obviously a flip side to this where, and you're probably more experienced with this than I am, is that governments, as soon as you say you can make a gun at home, get super, super leery of that um, for a number of reasons. But so have you seen these, there's been a few well-publicized like attempts to sort of end the plurif, plurif, I can't say the word proliferation. proliferation. Yeah. Thank you. Oh, that was terrible. Um, but there's been a few well-publicized attempts to sort of tamp down how widely these kits are available or these plans are available. Have you seen yeah. like actual um, usage of anything like this in conflict zones? Yeah, there's a little bit. It's it's pretty limited. So, you know, I, I get asked this question a lot, as you might expect, given, given my line of work. And... Uh, Generally speaking, the answer I say is in the places that we are most often tasked to look at, so those are conflict and, and uh, kind of unstable post-conflict areas, so think Libya, Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, Colombia, parts of Mexico, um, there is generally speaking an abundance of conventionally produced firearms. It's rare that people in these kinds of post-conflict zones are, are so hurting for a firearm uh, that they would need to turn to craft production, much less 3D printing. But that may change over time. Uh, and, you know, the big concern for a lot of lawmakers has been uh, when the Liberator was released, it's kind of evolved over time, but when the Liberate, Liberator was released, a lot of people were concerned about uh, the lack of metal components, the ability to smuggle it into uh, restricted areas through magnetometers, onto aircraft, whatever it may be. Some journalists took one without a firing pin onto a train, onto the Eurostar, I think. Uh, I believe someone might have, a journalist might have taken one into the Israeli uh, parliament you know, just to prove that it could be done. So that was that was one of the early concerns, was this idea that it would be used as an assassination tool by terrorists. That hasn't materialized. Where we have seen some limited uh, use of these types of weapons um, in, in criminal attacks, uh, in criminal uh, situations rather, as uh, in uh, the seizures of firearms from criminals. And so in Australia, in Canada, uh, in the UK, uh, in the United States, even um, 3D printed frames, in particular, so parts parts kit completion style weapons have been recovered. And then in the uh, there was the attack on the Halle synagogue, I think 2019 in Germany, um, and the the the, the terrorist who um, attempted that attack or who, who executed that attack took with him two Ludi style submachine guns, which listeners may be familiar with. Ludi, uh, Philip Ludi. P.A. Ludi was a, a British um, unregulated firearms designer and producer who produced more conventional kind of uh, pipe and square section tubing machine guns. And the uh, the shooter in the Huller attacks took a conventionally produced one of those and also one with a 3D printed lower that he'd made. And he never ended up using that and it probably wasn't going to be very effective, but that was sort of an indication that in Western Europe when there are lone wolf style terrorist attacks, it's likely that in future we will see craft-produced firearms and 3D-printed firearms. Interesting. So obviously, you know, 3D printing and firearms, it enables sort of this distribution more widely. Um, and there is a, you know, I think somewhat a understandable concern about how these guns can be used by sort of for criminal activity. Um, in the U.S. at least, firearms are prolific enough that there are other sources that I think probably make it less attractive. You know, a gang probably has a decent way to get firearms without 3D printing, you know, just to be frank. Yeah. Um, 
And as you mentioned, in major conflict zones, the irony of it being that outside powers probably back one or more of the parties and conventional guns are going to flow into those zones from the same governments that claim to be worried about small numbers of 3D printed guns. That's uh, Without that's diving nice. too far into that irony, um, you know, th those two big areas, I think, you know, are sort of, the caveats are that guns are available in those two, from the crime, U.S. crime level to conflict zones like Libya or Syria. There's other factors at play. I think, to me, it seems like the most likely scenarios of what you described is somewhere where there's not a huge number of firearms already, there's quite strict laws, then someone gets one and, ex, you know, perpetrates a, a lone wolf style attack. That to me seems to be the most, the most likely this develops for nefarious reasons. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I think it's, as we say, lowering that barrier to entry allows individuals who don't have that broader criminal or terrorist support network uh, to access firearms. I think you're absolutely right in the US context that it's unlikely to make much of a difference, certainly not in the, the short or medium term. Uh, and similarly, as as you and I both touched on, you know, in conflict zones, there's generally an abundance of weapons. Um, so yeah, I think that's exactly right. It's, it's in the areas where firearms are hard to obtain and where individuals don't have access to a broader network uh, to help them access firearms. And, you know, I, I try not to do politics. We, we keep the company and the consultancy is strictly apolitical because we're really interested in the technologies. But from an enforcement standpoint, I was asked to give some testimony to the Australian Senate, um, gosh, a few years ago now, five, five, four or five years ago. Uh, and essentially what I told them is they asked me about regulating the digital side of things. Can we regulate the files? Can we control the way in which they're shared between people? And I said, well, how did that go for, you know, controlling piracy uh, of, of you know, video content or of, of music? Uh, not great. And I think that history tells us that any attempt to you know, tightly regulate digital files is, is doomed to failure in the current framework of our internet and, and the way that people interact with each other. So, yeah, I, I think it's um, something law enforcement needs to be aware of. And obviously, I'm, I'm sympathetic both to the people who want to tinker and, and learn to, to make and shoot firearms, because I'm obviously a shooter myself, uh, but also to those people whose job it is to stop terrorist attacks. It's, um, it's another variable they now have to account for. Yeah. And I think there's also, you know, there's the, there's the pro tinkering side that I'll call it that, um, that I think I, you know, I feel sympathy towards and I yeah. understand. Um, I also think there's probably a case to be made, you know, in a place where in the U S where firearms ownership is broadly legal. Um, there, that, I think there's a very good case to make for the cost effectiveness, you know, for someone that does yeah. not have the means to acquire, you know, a very expensive item, the way that these guns drive down the cost of an item, uh, that's a very appealing, you know, for someone that's otherwise legal, but maybe can't afford it. Right. Uh, that to me is a, is a important argument to consider. I think that's going to become and, more important in the coming decades too. you know, right now the yeah. technology is still a little bit niche, a little bit um, kind of reliant on it, on its uh, fairly active, fairly small user base. But I think as it expands, as that user base expands, as, um, companies and, and, and larger nonprofit groups get involved, I suspect that that will become more accessible and more appealing to people who are like you describe. And one of the ways that I've been really interested to see how this develops, and there's been a couple bills proposed that I think might've impacted us, but, you know, we talked about sort of how it lowers that threshold. Mm -hmm. um, because 
here at the museum, of course, we've digitized most of the Winchester Company archives, which include some 30,000 engineering drawings from everything from the stand to set a mill on to the actual part you need to build the gun. Hmm. And, you know, for several models of Winchester, we have basically a complete set of drawings. If someone looked at those, combed through the archives that are all online, available digitally, you have all the information you need to build an M1 Grand, a Winchester 1895, a Winchester Lee Navy, whatever that particular model. We don't have complete records for all the guns, but it's always struck me in some ways that is a, it's a higher level of difficulty, but it's the same concept. The plans yeah. are there. If you had the CNC machine, the machinery to mill metal, you could do it. Right. Um, and I think in some of the efforts to limit digital file access, they run the risk of all of a sudden our 1895 Lee Navy drawings, we have to take them down off the web um, because they're no longer kosher. I don't think it's come that close yet. And I doubt it. No, although the original will, State Department, uh, you know, takedown notices, it's kind of colloquially referred to uh, for the 2013 Liberator plans essentially said that they were uh, in violation of ITAR restrictions by exporting essentially exporting defense sense of defense information via the internet by posting them online and you could make that argument probably about about certain design drawings that museums have made digitally available and i think that's absurd but you could you could certainly see how someone taking that to the nth degree with a, a legal bent and and the will to do so could could overreach with that so yeah i think it's a really valid valid concern i should also add before we get um, angry emails from engineers that both danny and i no doubt appreciate you cannot simply take a plan from uh, the 1800s and print it in polymer and have it function there is uh you know some, some redesign requirement of course and we saw that when people tried to make 3d printed uh, ar-15 lowers people did basically exact dimensional copies of aluminium or aluminum uh, lowers in polymer and they, they failed spectacularly. So obviously there's a materials engineering, materials science component to all of this, but I think you're absolutely right to say that when the user base expands and, and this technology is more accessible, there are a lot of uh, genuine and really fascinating historical um, recreation replication aspects. I know uh, our colleagues at Springfield Armory National Historic Site were, were looking at some of those already. So yeah, 3D printing, for listeners who aren't familiar with 3D printing more broadly, is there are 3D printed parts in the SpaceX rockets, uh, the SpaceX Dragon that took uh, crew members to the International Space Station. There are 3D printed components in the F-35 uh, fighter aircraft. It's a conventional part of high-tech engineering today now. And uh, it's even in the firearms industry for rapid prototyping, for testing new ergonomics, for accessories. Magpul uses 3D printers all the time. So th there are 3D printers out there and being used. Um, and we'll definitely see that, that technology uh, diversify and become uh, more robust over time. Yeah, I should say, I certainly didn't mean that you could take our Lee Navy drawings and like right. plug that into the printer right now. However, I think if you were a savvy machinist, you could take Absolutely. those drawings and create the parts you needed. However, yeah. if a listener is interested and wants to go visit and view all of our Lee Navy drawings and try and turn a <laughs> Lee Navy receiver into a printed file, by all means, please do and please email me because I want to know about it. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, yeah, and I think you mentioned there, there's some really interesting possibilities for museums and firearms museums, especially that have all these questions about how these old components work, but don't necessarily want to test old components. Um, yeah, there, there's definitely possibilities there. So I'll wrap up on this question, or we can wrap up on this question, but um, you know, we've talked about sort of the origins of 3D printing, a little bit on how it sort of ties into this historical 
you know, uh, this past of people making their own guns and some about, you know, where museums fit in all this, but where do you see the next step? So we've had the totally 3D printed guns. We had the different categories you described, how that's sort of evolved and how people are printing receivers and that sort of thing. What do you see as the next step for 3D printed firearms? Is it new materials? Is it more um, complex, wholly 3D printed guns? Is What's your thought? I think there are three areas that I would look at. The first is uh, is materials, as you say, whether that's the ability to print in new materials, so uh, essentially making printing in metals more cost-effective, or whether that's the ability to use advanced polymers, including um, polymer and metal hybrids, so things like printing in a polymer and then um, using different methods such as PVD, physical vapor deposition, to put a metal uh, structure on the outside of a polymer skeleton, for example, or using um, uh, sort of high-tech, high if you like, polymers like uh, PEK, which is polyethyl ketone, I think. I'm going to get that wrong, I'm sure. Um, so, you know, a bunch of different material sciences advances. Uh, the the second area would be those sort of complementary technologies I talked about. So particularly ECM, electrochemical machining, something like a dynamic ECM machine. So maybe a three-axis uh, ECM machine that looks like a desktop CNC, but uses an electrochemical process, uh, potentially uses um, uses other, uh, other kinds of processes. So those other types of complementary technologies being scaled down and made more user-friendly. And the uh, third area is going to be really based on, on the digitalization and the design, the broadening of the user base, more minds uh, making the, the kind of work easier, solving some of those complex challenges. At the moment, it's still a very small core user base that's driving a lot of this development. Really, um, there are about a dozen sort of big figures, if you like, in the 3D printed firearm space right now and maybe a couple of hundred uh, highly active members. Um, thousands and thousands of people who, who, who are interested in produce firearms and so on. But the people that are really driving the technology advances is a relatively small group. And I think once that broadens out, that's going to be a huge, a huge leap forward. Cool. Well, I want to say thanks for joining us on the podcast. Um, I hope our, hope our listeners enjoyed this episode. Um, a little bit change of gears uh, from our normal episodes but hopefully interesting. I found it super interesting. I learned something deep in my knowledge of a field that I'm, I've only really scratched the surface on. Um, also want to say thanks to our listeners. If you've made it this long in this episode, you've also helped us just cross the 20,000 downloads all time mark for the podcast. So really appreciate you guys listening. Hope you're enjoying the podcast still, and we'll be back at you next week. See ya. Thanks. Guys.